Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If I don't do something about this situation, if I don't go and get an education and break out of this cycle of poverty, I'm going to be stuck in it. Imagine being so poor in grade school that you walked loops every day to hide your life from the kids on the school bus. Imagine going to school hungry. Imagine not knowing whose floor you'd be doing homework on that night. Picture humiliation, fear, eviction after eviction, having to work at the age of nine, just barely getting by. And then try to imagine breaking out of this life to not only go to college, but to become student body president. And now, fast forward to 2018, a top aide to Virginia's lieutenant governor. Please stick around for this inspiring episode. Full disclosure is made possible by our friends at Elwood Thompson's, RVA's best store, Virginia's best store. I'm not ashamed to say it because I'm there all the time. Small, independent, local, organic market located at the top of Richmond's Carytown, but really so much more than that. They're the Blanchard's coffees. You can get a 99-cent cup of, of A-grade coffee if you bring your own mug. They're Indian Wednesdays. There's that breakfast bar. Uh, I got to tell you, the, 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 the cafe in the mornings, it's better than LinkedIn. I mean, the people you meet there. I even saw, I even saw um, Meg Ryan walk in once. It's crazy, man. Uh, it's, like, it's like Richmond's equivalent to the clock at Grand Central Station. So definitely check them out at elwoodthompsons.com and at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. Joining me in studio, Adele McClure, who has traversed an impoverished childhood across many states to break out as a student body leader at Virginia Commonwealth University. And now, wait for it, she's outreach and policy director for Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor of Virginia. How are you, Adele? I'm doing well, Robin. Thank you so much. I'm thanking you for showing up on such short notice. I mean, I heard about you. I, I read about you in a school post and... Um, I cannot believe in that doing more research, I mean, how many more grades of adversity there were in doing this. I mean, your mother had stability. It was, it was passed down to you. You knew hunger. You knew illness that required you to lean on Medicaid. Take me back to where this story begins, where you first recall adversity, where you kind of had to grow up as a child. I think uh, as far back as I can remember in Yuma, Arizona, which was pretty destitute area, um, not many opportunities for growth. And uh, I do remember only having a few items in the refrigerator at all times. And, um, you know, I would, I would walk into, you know, friends' homes and they would have entire <laughs> refrigerators of food. And uh, I knew that we were in a, in a bad position when I asked one of my friends, uh, and I think I was about six, I asked them if they can bring me the receipt from their mother's grocery run, and then I went down the receipt and asked them if they wouldn't mind sharing. I circled on the receipt certain items, and they brought them out and shared them with my brother and I. And so it was that moment where, you know, I thought, well, I need to try to do as much as possible or anything uh, to get fed because all we had was, you know, government. Um, well, you know, at the time they called it government cheese, but really we had butter we had sugar, which was surprising, and then uh, I remember having tortillas and then some canned foods. So, um, you know, my sister, I always thought that it was a just an amazing thing to have oysters in a can. I thought that was the norm, and so my sister used to eat that with mustard, and then we used to rub um, some butter on the tortillas and roll them up, and that was dinner. Now, your mother was very busy working as a single mother. I mean, you, you'll get into it later. You didn't know your father. Uh, until very recently. But 
when was this made apparent to you? Did she have to pull you aside and say, kids, you need to pull more than the typical share of, of childhood weight that we have it rough? Was there a kind of a, a formal presentation she unfortunately <laughs> had to make? Uh, there, there was no formal presentation. Uh, I feel like uh, she was so busy trying to take care of us and then also trying to work uh, over 40 hours and multiple jobs to, to pay the bills. Uh, so I don't think that she thought to sit us down and tell us what was happening. We just kind of saw it unfold before our eyes. And and when we got that first eviction or when we had the lights off, I mean, it was pretty apparent. So and she would just say, well, I don't have the money to pay for it. And so I would, you know, specifically in Virginia and Fairfax County, I would accompany her. My brother and I would accompany her to uh, many of the different nonprofits, churches, um, you know, government offices to beg for someone to pay for our light bill or to give us food or uh, pay for our rent that month or, or even just subsidize it so she can have some time to find some money to pay it off so we're not on the streets. So it was, you know, pretty apparent. And that's when I thought to myself, you know what, I need to try to find a job as, you know, quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, the job at nine, of course. At the age of nine. Yeah. That, that, I didn't make money from that. I did do car washes at that age. But the job at nine is I went into the apartment complex uh, leasing office and I said, hey, I know there are child labor laws. <laughs> so I know that I can't work for money, but could I work for cookies? And, uh, you know, maybe some of the trinkets that they had. And they agreed. So, you know, every single day I would go to um, when I wasn't in school, maybe on the weekend uh, and, at, and when I got out of school, I would walk up to uh, the office and they'd hand me a stack of papers and tell me to put them on each of the apartment doors. And um, I felt like if I created this relationship with the apartment leasing office, maybe they're less likely to evict us. And then also, you know, I get paid in cookies. So, you know, that would curb my appetite for just a little bit. When do you recall your first eviction? Let's see. Were you in elementary school? Was it in the vicinity of that time? I mean, you knew about the present threat of mm -hmm. eviction to your mm -hmm. mother enough to go and seek a apprenticeship at the leasing office. Mm -hmm. well, I, I think my mom told me that we received a notice and then somehow she was able to come up with the money. But I didn't necessarily see the effects of it until later. And, um, you know, she's had an extremely tough life herself and, and she's had to deal with a series of evictions all of her life. And one eviction in particular spiraled out of control um, when she or her life spiraled, spiraled out of control uh, after that when she gave her cousin some money uh, to pay her bill. My mom got evicted and then ended up, you know, homeless and losing my brother and my sister to the foster care system. And and it just went downhill from there. So I feel like for my mom, it was it was very normal. Um, she Well, she knew it wasn't normal, but it was a very normal occurrence to her. And um, so when she would break it to us, it wouldn't sound like uh, something very devastating. It just seemed like this is something that we could come back from. So she um, kind of instilled in us the fact that we need to get an education and we need to do well in school uh, in these, you know, free educational um, environments. And, and that's what we did. We did our best and, and we worked hard in school, uh, even though it was a little difficult. Um, there was a, certainly an achievement gap with, with moving from school to school and then also thinking about what you're going to eat that night and how your mom's going to pay the bills and the rent. 
one of the painful memories I have from elementary school. I just remember my father would dutifully send me off every morning with a Ziploc bag of uh, three quarters for school mm-hmm. lunch at Highland Oaks Elementary. And then, at, you know, adjusting for inflation, I think I think it became a dollar. But the line was always held up. And I remember Rosie, the cashier, had to... I, I can't believe this, and you must be very cognizant of it now, and I'm curious what your experience was. It wasn't lunch-shaming kids, but it was getting kids to kind of swear that their parents paid that balance. They were constantly moving papers around at the front of the line, and they'd make another line for free and reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. And I would have I would have imagined even then that if somebody couldn't afford lunch, certainly the public school system in this country would give them free and reduced lunch. In fact, there was a breakfast program. You would You would think, and then growing up, uh, you know, taking sociology courses, being a taxpayer, that there'd be a safety net, that there'd be aid to families with dependent children, food stamps, SNAP, whatever you call it, um, emergency medical insurance for kids. How was that in practice, for example, with, with school lunch and the school safety net? Um, I do remember receiving free and reduced lunch. I can't remember. Uh, I think at some point it was reduced and then they had to move me to free lunch. And there was, um, in my mind, a separate line. And and I think that the lunch ladies made it pretty apparent when, when it was free um, because with the other kids in line, they would tell them the balance on the card. And then with me or other kids with free, free and reduced lunch, um, they just, you know, didn't tell us any kind of balance and they just told us to move on. Um, and But I was definitely thankful for that program because that was mainly the only time that I got to eat a real meal and, you know, my mom did cook when she could and when she had food stamps available to her. But, um, you know, food stamps didn't cover the entire month. Um, but so that's why I was very thankful to the school programs. But another thing is if you were on free and reduced lunch, that didn't cover field trips. So it was also very apparent that you're a poor kid when you couldn't go take the trip to New York. Yeah. So a lot of people got uh, a lot of people at that age in elementary school got to experience leaving the area and going on a field trip with their peers. And then they would ask me why I'm not going to what seemed like the greatest trip of their lives at the time. This actually breaks my heart in hindsight because I can think back to, uh, you know, there were kids we knew as latchkey kids and others who would come and uh, would really look forward to lunch or would be very, I just remember going back that they'd be the ones in the free and reduced queue would would eat lunch in a very mindful way. I mean, it was an important meal for them, and some would get there early that were bussed in that would take would take breakfast as well. And I'm I'm mad at you know. I guess you can't be mad at a, a you know an elementary school kid for being so naive about it. I'm mad at the I'm mad at the culture that it has allowed kids to be shamed in a certain way. I thought the shaming stops at clothing, or the car that your mom and dad drop you off at. But thinking back on it. We had bake sales for the PTA, and not everybody could bring money to a bake sale to even buy a dollar or a two-dollar brownie. We had the holiday gift shop where they'd sell trinkets for the PTA and not other kids. And it breaks my heart to think back on it that this was something that at an early age made like made a person feel like mm-hmm. a second-class citizen. And book fairs as well. Yes, that was book a big fairs. that was a big thing in elementary school to be able to go to the book fair and pick out your favorite books. Uh, I know Junie B. Jones was a big one for me, uh, but I could never afford it, so I would just browse, and I would see people picking or other kids picking up, um, you know, bookmarks, books, a bunch of different you know, items that were available in the in the book fair and then never being able to to pick something up. But I do remember one time it fell around tax time. And so my mom got a refund 
and she gave me some money to go to book fair, and I bought. So this was two separate uh, times when she gave me money for the book fair, and I bought a diary each time, so I could write down my account of you know what was going on in my childhood. And I still have those diaries till this day. And some of the diaries, a lot of the entries uh, talk about me accompanying my mom to uh, churches and nonprofits and asking for money for to turn the lights on. So it was, it's pretty sad to look back and, and read it. And I didn't, it's, you know, I, I thank you, Robin, for having me on the show because, um, and telling the story because I didn't think there was anything unique about my story. I thought it was uh, just something, you know, just part of life and that we fell on the wrong side uh, of life. And, and I didn't, you know, I, a lot of people who saw the article were probably shocked to see that I've, you know, been homeless, that I was in poverty, uh, because I don't talk about it too much. Uh, but I have been talking about it more lately because I feel that uh, it's important to tell the story and, and to, um, you know, talk about the barriers that exist out there for people, um, you know, to not uh, be able to grow and, you know, uplift themselves from poverty. To the extent you're ever able to focus on your studies as, as the ultimate transport out of this life, as the, as the foot in the door, when did it first occur to you that you could, if you, if you focus like a laser on school and the path ahead, that there could be a way out? I think when my mom started drilling it into us at a young age, that's when I started um, realizing that it was very important because it was one of the things she talked about all the time. She, you know, didn't get a chance to um, go to college. So I was the first generation uh, to get a college education. And so um, once she told me that and then I would see it on TV and, and when I was in school with the other kids, their parents had college educations and they were doing well. So I always thought, hey, maybe I could do the same thing. So it, I definitely think it was around that point where I thought it was extremely important to hone in on my studies and, uh, you know, try to get to college. But it was hard when when you're the only one um, who's had uh, any experience in trying to get to college. So you don't have any guidance. And so with the FAFSA, with the trying, financial aid yep, application. Yep. And, and with trying to select colleges, not knowing what to look for. Um, and then even as simple as the classes that you're currently in, uh, in high school, um, there was nobody to look over my homework. So it was just kind of a gamble. I, I was hoping that my homework was correct by the time I went to school, um, because, you know, it, it becomes difficult for teachers to give, um, you know, attention to each and every child in their classroom. So I understood that, uh, and I understood that it was up to me. Um, to, you know, make my own success or, um, you know, pave my own path. Full disclosure, listening to Adele McClure, she's traversed a life of poverty, um, uh, having to know this at a very young age and broke out about a decade ago, become a student body president, correct, at Virginia correct. Commonwealth mm -hmm. University. You're now a top policy deputy for Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. I just, uh, I see in some of these notes and, you know, um, we, we had pre-interviewed you. I mean, to, to have conventional teenage angst is one thing <laughs> and peer pressure and all that jazz. I mean, we remember those awkward, miserable years. I mean, I prefer to, <laughs> I prefer to repress them <laughs> myself. But just to give everybody an idea here, after middle school, your mother and your, her then fiancé split up 
And so your mom, your younger brother, and you moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Alexandria, Virginia. Your mother couldn't afford the rent for long, so you were eventually evicted. That's middle school. You then moved in with family in Georgia, but after a disagreement, your mother was kicked out. The family offered for you and your brother to stay, but you went with your mother. That night, you sat out on the curb until a neighbor offered to let you sleep on their floor. You slept on their floor for a few nights until your mother's ex-fiance drove from Virginia to pick you up and and let you stay with him in his one-bedroom apartment. However, shortly after, he kicked you all out of the apartment. After that, you checked into a bad, cheap local hotel room. We stayed there. You said for several months after that, we moved into transitional housing, which turned into permanent housing. While you lived at the hotel, you lied to your classmates in school about where you really lived because you were embarrassed. Your mother applied for Section 8 housing voucher during your freshman year of high school in Virginia. The wait list was long. She mulled a move to Missouri, but by then... Even in spite of all this volatility, you were focused on in-state tuition in Virginia and getting into Virginia. How in the world did you possibly <laughs> focus on this? I mean, other people would have dropped out. I don't know. I, I just knew that I wouldn't be able to afford out-of-state tuition. Um, so I, I was just focused on trying to get to college because I didn't want to live the life that we were currently living. And she, she drilled that into me as well. Um, and in the middle of all this, so my big brother was incarcerated, so we were— uh, we took in his two children. So we had my toddler niece and nephew that I would watch all the time when I had those three jobs during high school. And so there was so much going on. And uh, I don't feel that I had the normal high school experience. And I I can't tell you what the normal high school experience is. It's pretty ratchet. Right. <laughs> but I didn't have that. It's ratchet. <laughs> I didn't have that ratchet experience. Maybe maybe one or two days, but, you know, not, not over the course of four years. And... Uh, but I do remember someone telling me that, you know, I get to go to school. If I if I went to a school in Virginia, I would pay way less tuition than people coming from out of state. And uh, I thought about I thought as far ahead uh, to student loans <laughs> as possible. And I I think I graduated and I say I think because the interest uh, on it. But I graduated with uh, less than fifteen thousand dollars in debt. And um, that was because of a series of scholarships and uh, grants and, you know, government but I loans. But still, I still want to get at your faith in doing this because, you know, one, unpack your brother's incarceration for mm -hmm. me. Were there other siren songs that pulled him in this volatile childhood where your mother wasn't there, where you, ha you recall having to beg for forbearance on rent or going to churches and schools and other institutions? Traditionally, I mean, you could take the the – the illegal siren call of crime for some people. Others can say, I'm just going to drop out because I need to make money right now. If, even if I take a cashier's job, even if I work as a waitress or as a cook or something else, that was never a valid option for you in your mother's eyes? Um, well, she knew that I could do both. She knew that in the short term, I could take up a cashier's job, which I did and uh, that I could take up other odd jobs and make money on the side to help her pay rent. And my first paycheck actually went to rent, um, the entire paycheck. So most people, when they work their first job, you know, they'll sometimes they'll pay you three weeks later instead of two weeks on that first paycheck. Imagine working all those hours for three weeks and then that entire paycheck having to go to the rent. Having to go to help your mom with rent? Yep, having to go to help my mom but with rent. But how did you feel about that? I was devastated. So uh, I called my big sister. So my big brother and my big sister at the time uh, didn't live with us. And I called my big sister crying. And, you know, she just said that, that I mean, that was that was how it was. Otherwise, we would be evicted again. And so um, I just had to kind of 
snap back into reality and, and realize that it was something that I had to do in the short term. But in the long term, I kept thinking ahead that if I don't do something about this situation, if I don't go and get an education and break out of this cycle of poverty, I'm going to be stuck in it and I'm going to continue to work these short-term jobs. And that's not the case for everyone. I was afforded the opportunity by being in a great area with uh, amazing opportunities and a great school system. Even though I was in a poor neighborhood, I was uh, zoned to be in a, in a great school. Uh, so I feel like that also contributed to um, my current success and being around other people who uh, weren't poor. And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And I, I've, I was aware of that at that age. How many different jobs did you have to keep in high school? Um, what were they? So one wasn't paid, uh, but I knew that was going to help in the long run. Uh, so that one was the uh, internship at the House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee back when Charlie Rangel was chair. And Charlie Rangel. Charlie I used Rangel. to do an impersonation. <laughs> That's a good impersonation. <laughs> no, I remember him defending Bill Clinton. It was during 1998. The president's like any citizen. He can have picadillos. Anyway, I just. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was back then. And, and that was the only high school student amongst uh, all of the college students. And uh, one of them was a college student in economics. So that's, uh, and I can talk about that later. That's what one of the reasons why I got interested in economics. And then um, the other two jobs, I worked at a, uh, it was like a real estate title law firm. And I worked as a temp there. And then I also- But these are white collar jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are, those are two. Uh, And then at the same time, I was working at uh, Pop's Ice Cream Parlor and then uh, the Fish Market Restaurant. So I was scooping ice cream and then I was a cashier, hostess and waitress at Fish Market Restaurant. So, How did you have any time for your homework or achievement tests or PSATs or any of that? Let me ask you. Oh, yeah. So the PSAT, <laughs> I don't remember taking the PSAT. Maybe I did, but I didn't take it as serious because I, I remember being extremely hungry during the SAT. I don't remember the PSAT, but the, P, the SAT, I knew it was something that I had to do to get into college. So I took it on one shot, and I remember trying to rustle all my papers so nobody could hear the— uh, my stomach growling, uh, which was very distracting. So I just had to build time into my very busy schedule, and then I would come home and watch my niece and nephew, and then go to, or I'd, or I'd go to work and then come home and watch my niece and nephew. So I'd kind of trade off with my little brother and my mom. And um, what about homework? Homework, I had to do the same thing. So sometimes I wouldn't get much sleep, and uh, I had to stay up pretty late to finish my homework. And I'm not sure. Um, how how I got the grades that I did get in high school. And, and I just wanted, I think I, I was focused on not playing around when I was in class and, and trying to take advantage of the opportunities that were in front of me, which, you know, was a free education and, and you know, a teacher that was trying to teach me things that... Color, would... color me naive, right? <laughs> and maybe I watched too many movies. But shouldn't there be a figure available like a guidance counselor or an Edward James almost stand and deliver type <laughs> at every high school that a person can go to in confidence and say, I'm having a crisis at home. I mean, another person might be facing violence at home or sexual mm-hmm. abuse at home. Shouldn't every, I'm, I'm making a normative question here. Shouldn't there be a person to say, look, I'm having to just to stay put. I'm having to hustle in so many different ways. I'm having to run on so many different treadmills. Somebody throw me a bone. Somebody give me help. 
Yeah, I, was there a resource like that? I'm thinking, there, especially in Northern Virginia. Yeah, yeah. So in my in my school, we had guidance counselors, and they were assigned to you. I don't know if it was based on last name, but you were assigned to a certain guidance counselor. I knew some were better than others, but mine in particular, I didn't trust uh, to tell her these things because when I entrusted her with uh, my college choices, like I told her, oh, I'd love to go to Harvard. She told me I didn't deserve to go to Harvard. And so that was the end of my uh, trust with her. And so I felt like I, I couldn't tell her anything after that. Why did, I, you, why did you Why did you pick And I BCU? didn't apply to Harvard. <laughs> you didn't apply to Harvard, I but didn't. you had the grades. Did you have – the SAT also is something that I feel a, a little indignant about. Not only – you know, college applications, a lot of times you have to apply for a fee waiver. Mm-hmm. You never know if that affects anything, if it's kind of need-blind admissions. Um SAT counseling, cram lessons, if you follow mm-hmm. what's going on in the, the most elite New York City public schools like Bronx, Sci and Stuyvesant, um, a, a lot of kids have been preparing for that exam mm-hmm. since the third grade. And that takes parents with the freedom of thought and the foresight and the budget to put them in cram yep. classes. So not everybody starts off at the same uh, you know, starting line to take the PSAT for the, you know, what was that scholarship, the National Merit Scholarship mm-hmm. or the SAT itself, which is the all-deciding. Mm-hmm. Great. What were your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it's supposed to be a standardized yeah, test. It's supposed, it's to, supposed standardized. to standardize for every every school difference across the country. But in fact, yeah. it it um, it polarizes. And I and I don't uh, I don't remember my score, but I do remember that it wasn't uh, it wasn't extremely high. But I thought it was it was higher than than, uh, you know, what I thought it was going to turn out to be. Um, but, yeah, you're right. There, were, I felt intimidated by the test itself because all of my peers, they've been taking PSATs. They've been taking prep courses because they could afford the prep courses. So I just felt like I was not prepared for the SAT, and it was extremely nerve-wracking. And, uh, like I said, I didn't have anything to eat that morning, so I was very hungry. You went into your SAT hungry. I did, yeah. That's why my, when my stomach was growling, the, uh, yeah, the papers I was, I was moving that. them around, and so I think I wasted some time there uh, trying to focus on my gr- this growling stomach, which I thought was extremely embarrassing in a very quiet test setting. So I thought I was uh, interrupting the other test takers when you know. Then I had to snap, snap back, and realize this is this test will dictate your life and, and where you're going. So for me, it was more than getting into a good college. It was getting into a place that was going to help lift me out of poverty and, to, and then in turn help me lift my family out of poverty. So, and it has, and VCU has. Take so. me to that life. Take me to VCU. Take me to getting in the letter, preparing yourself, preparing the conversation you and your mother and your siblings had for debt, for you leaving the house, leaving Northern Virginia and coming to the RVA. Walk mm-hmm. me through that. Yeah. So, um, the letter came in. Yeah. So the letter came in. And uh, actually, it's funny, I applied to two schools, George Mason and VCU. And um, luckily, George Mason, the application was incomplete, uh, which made no sense to me. And that's another story. Um, So, you know, I I got accepted into VCU, had this financial package. So it was an easy choice. And uh, I knew I wanted to go to VCU, too, because of the diversity there. So when I received the letter, I was extremely happy. And I told my mom she was very happy for me as well. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the times when when I had these milestones, my mom was as happy as she could be. But then she had to snap back and start thinking about how to pay the bills. 
So it wasn't like other parents when I see them celebrating their children or taking them out to eat. It was, you know, I'm very proud of you. And then now I'm going to pay this rent. But so. I got to ask you, you would, the, the prospect is of you no longer being a breadwinner in this house, too. It's a double loss, right? Mm-hmm. You being a cost basis, mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly you would have to bear the cost, the debt and the carrying costs and everything and the travel cost, but also not, not being there to help and also with child care. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think at that point um, my mom was going to take – so I think my brother uh, got out and she was going to take the children back to Missouri. Um, so fat, kind of rewinding, that's when I had begged her not to leave yet and because she was going to take – the little money she had to There was Missouri. cheaper rent in Missouri. Yeah. Yep. She was going to take that. And then so because I begged her to stay so I can finish out high school and then go to college, uh, you know, put her in a bind. So then she ended up getting informally evicted where the landlord told her, hey, if you move out by this date, I won't, you know, I'll drop the case. I won't take you to court. And so that's what she decided to do. And so when I was transitioning to VCU, I took as much with me as possible and, uh, you know, I moved in. She helped me move in. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great feeling, but I didn't get to buy all the stuff from my dorm that everybody else around me bought. So I just brought the necessities. And, uh, and I, I remember my roommate brought the refrigerator because it was more expensive, and I brought a microwave. So, you know, I scrounged up money that I had saved from working to buy a microwave. Uh, it was the deal, the roommate deal. And then my mom, um, you know— Right when I was away from college, I was continuing to send money back to her from what I had saved for the bills. But when she got evicted, she had to pretty much sell everything and then move back to Missouri. And um, so it was kind of weird for me not having some place to go uh, that I could afford to go to to see my family during the summers. So I had to find a place to stay during the summers and, and during breaks. I didn't go back with my family like most people did. Um, in fact, I don't know that I've went to Missouri until after graduation or not after graduation, maybe my senior year. Um, I, I can't remember, but yeah, it was, it was, a it was a weird feeling. And, and then I, you know, like I said, I got on campus, immediately started talking to every single person, getting to know a lot of people. Let and, me get this right. Were you, were you hungry when you started here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, but there was a meal plan. So I relied on the meal plan. And um, and I also got work study. So that day that I got there and I was kind of on my, on my own and my mom left, um, you know, I was making friends with everyone. And I ran into somebody who ended up giving me a work study position in residential life and housing. And so uh, once I made money from that, I sent that all back to my mom. When were you finally able to have some disposable income to do something for yourself, maybe go out? to lunch with a boyfriend or with a girlfriend or, you know, to, to, to be, to be young and careless for once. Was there any of that freshman year? Oh yeah. Yeah. There was lots of that freshman year. I had a bunch of friends who would, uh, pay for me. And, um, you know, I feel like in college, everyone was broke and everybody noticed that they were broke. Yeah. They're kind of leveling tendencies. (laughs) Everybody's eating the ramen noodles. Exactly. So I didn't feel out of place in that sense. And a lot of people who were close to me, didn't know my background uh, until after graduation, and we've known each other for decades. Well, not decades. That's that's really exaggerated. So you didn't keep you did, you weren't you didn't have to be open with it. I wasn't open with it. Wow. And because I didn't think that it was something uh, worth talking about, 
And, you know, I kind of blocked out a lot that that's happened in my life. I just blocked it out and just kept moving. But, yeah, I, I, so, but to answer your question, uh, as far as disposable income, probably when I got that first job at the Army Association and uh, I thought when they gave me the amount of money that they gave me, I thought that was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, yeah, I, but I, I still gave my mom money. I still give my mom money to this day and, and help her out. But the difference is now she has a housing choice voucher, so uh, she hasn't faced eviction. How did you get over and, you know, forgive me if this is not a polite thing to say, any potential feelings of inadequacy? Knowing what you knew about where you came from, a lot of people think that they don't belong there or they kind of mm-hmm. slip through the cracks. It's Look, freshman year is hard. It's hard as hell for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of dislocation and homesickness. And meanwhile, you have these strains going on back at home, multi-state travels, sending money back to mom, your brother getting out of jail. How did you handle that? In a way, then I want you to transition us to ultimately becoming student body president. I mean, how many people are at VCU? Uh, Well, at the time, there were over 32,000 students, probably more now. And little Adele became student body president. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So how I got over the feelings of inadequacy. um, If there were feelings of inadequacy. If there were feelings. Sometimes there were. And I think not just because of my background, but uh, as a black woman. Because a lot of people feel um, that you need to prove yourself to be at the, at the table and, and to have a seat at the table. So, um, you know, in, in growing up in a family where uh, not everybody was educated, there was, you know, a, a lot that people grew up knowing that I didn't know in words that I didn't know how to pronounce. And so I had to kind of learn all of this on my own. And uh, so there, you know, there's still those feelings um, every now and then. Yeah, but you got to walk me through this. When did you have the gumption? Did you just join a lot of activity things? I did. Oh, the, you just throw the, yourself headlong in I, that? I definitely Which did. Which is a little paradoxical yeah. because you, you still had to keep work-study job. You still mm-hmm. had to mm-hmm. maybe do something on the side to send some extra cash back to mom who was in Missouri at that time. Yeah, yeah, I think she was, yep. So there and, was so you, and you had to keep a certain GPA and you had to do well in school mm-hmm. for financial aid. And yet you, you you went headlong into activities. Yeah, I, I think I don't even know. I'm pretty sure I joined over my freshman year, probably over 12 organizations. And, and I, I ran for SGA Senate. So I've been in SGA or I was in SGA for all four years of college. Student Government Association. Yep, Student Government Association. Uh, apologies for all the acronyms. And uh, WTF, <laughs> LOL, right? OMG, <laughs> but uh, LMFAO, right? <laughs> if you have but, millennials in the studio, you, know, you got to volley the serve. <laughs> um, well, at Deloitte, you know, they have a bunch of acronyms, so yeah. I haven't gotten out of that habit. Uh, but yeah, so so I knew with the Student Government Association that I could register for classes early. Not only uh, could I represent the student body in, in their issues and, and speak out on, on behalf of the students, I could also register for classes early, which meant that I could finish my degree on time and pick the, um, the classes that were uh, pertinent to graduating. So, and I, I think I actually learned this afterward, but I, I wanted to get involved. Um, so I jumped headfirst into everything. And, you know, it's it just kind of went went up from there. I I, I don't know. So you're actually then building you're building confidence through the sophomore junior years. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any setback type thing that would call you back home. Did you have a fear in the back of your mind that 
this would have to be put on hold if something went wrong at home, because certainly there was a history of things going wrong, setbacks. Oh, yeah, that was always in the back of my mind, but I tried not to think about it too much. I just tried to think, you know, day by day. So just... Uh, but you got you got to talk to me about winning student government oh, president. Yeah. <laughs> How in the heck? What persuaded you to do that? And what was it like? And then winning? Oh, it was a uh, it was a whole mix of emotions. Um, what persuaded me was that I thought that uh, I had a platform uh, that I could run on that would help students, and um, you know that. And I've had experience in the in the student government association. Uh, to run. So I, I knew exactly what needed to be done. I knew what resources we had to do it. And uh, I felt that, you know, at the time, my voice wasn't represented. So I, 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 you know, stood up to run. And it was, I mean, it was a crazy experience just going to every student talking. And But I did that anyway. And, and just convincing them to vote for you and talking about your platform. I went to almost all of the organizations uh, to speak in their meetings. I went to classrooms. Never never having to lean on the biographical, saying this is the story of my life. No, I I did not. (laughs) You were at that point really unequal. Yeah, yeah. So I just talked about my experience in Student Government Association and and my uh, track record. And, you know, I just talked about what I could do. And I talked about my platform. And uh, I think, I, I don't remember my tagline. I think it was, you know, McClure Mays for Realistic Solutions or something like that. And so uh, I got grilled in a lot of different, like, political science classes. I showed up to political science classes and, and uh, you know, talked to the students about voting for me. And so the teacher, of course, the professor would encourage his students to grill me <laughs> uh, because why not? It's a political science course. And uh, so that was—I I thought that was fun, though, because I was able to answer their questions um, with substance. And and everybody wants to know about your experience in high government. I mean, this has been a bright spot really for the Democratic Party is is Northam and Fairfax uh, running this grand state of Virginia. How did you meet Justin Fairfax? I understand you weren't <laughs> even going to vote for him. In a and how did you get persuaded yeah. to come into this life? And what has that been life like in the few minutes that we have left? Yeah. So I uh, was working on the Obama campaign uh, in 2012 and uh you know, I had worked pretty hard on that campaign uh, on the side uh, when I was at the Army Association. So when the campaign ended, one of the regional directors invited me to a straw poll for free. And, you know, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford that. And so he gave me two tickets. So I brought, I came, uh, I was bringing myself and, and my mom. So my mom, she was pretty heavily involved in politics, too, because I dragged her in. And she's really good, by the way, at uh, canvassing and talking to people. So I think that's where I get it from. Um, so we went to the straw poll and it's packed. It's, you know, it's in the, uh, it's the Mardi Gras straw poll in Mount Vernon. Uh, you know, Representative Beyer, he holds it, uh, or, or he hosted it every year. So we're walking through, trying to navigate through the crowd and talk to people. And, uh, you know, some guy bumps into me and he's very charismatic and he looks down at my paper ballot and he says, uh, what can I do to get you to change that vote? <laughs> and um, I said, oh, you must be Justin Fairfax. I had never seen him before. I had only heard about him and, and saw his name because he was a newcomer to the political field. And uh, I said, hey, if you answer these three questions, which to this day we both don't remember what they are, which is I, it was about vulnerable uh, populations. So I said, if you answer these three questions, I'll consider changing my vote. I'll keep an open mind. 
And so he knocked the questions out of the park so much so that I not only changed my vote on the spot, I told him, I'm going to volunteer for you. because was- <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I not only changed my vote <laughs> no. on the spot, I'm going to marry you. No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I told him, I said, I'm, I'll absolutely volunteer for you because it was in that moment, just in that brief moment of speaking to him, mm. I believed in him and his message. And it didn't take much. And so I only worked for candidates who I believed actually cared about the people. And he had a great platform that he ran on for attorney general at the time. Uh, So I I was all in. You know, I did outreach. I did policy work. I did fundraising pretty much And what's interesting that comes full circle is, you know, Charlie Rangel, his district was where? In New York specifically? Oh, I can't tell you the specific district. that I, but knew I a imagine it covered the Bronx, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. So what did you think about this news this week with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at, oh, at the wow. age of 28 pulling this off, like beating thought, one of the top Democrats in the House? I thought it was incredible. I mean, it just shows that, um, you know, nobody's safe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, she, she brings a, a new fire and a new voice, um, you know, to, to Congress if, if she, if she you know, gets elected into Congress, which most likely will be because it's a pretty heavily Democratic area. Um, so, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for her. I think, I think it's great that, you know, it, it's part of democracy, right? It's a democratic process. Well, the electorate cl- Tell me her. what's ahead for you then. You have this wonderful platform. You broke through. You are— in many ways, past a lot of where your other classmates would have been, who are still struggling <laughs> to find opportunities. You knew adversity, you knew grit. What can we expect to see from you over the next decade? Uh, you can expect for me to find any and every way to solve homelessness. That is my main goal in life. How I do it, where I, you know, where I go, what position I'm in, uh, doesn't matter. As long as I'm in a position to help other people. Uh, like, for example, I'm on the 10-year plan to end homelessness in Arlington. That's where I lived. Uh, pretty soon I'll be involved in the governor's coordinating um, council on homelessness. And so this is my main goal. I, I don't, I've never thought of a specific position. Like, I, I didn't know I would be in this position if I look back, you know, a decade ago. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't tell you an exact place. I can just tell you that. Wherever I'm going or wherever, whatever I'll do, it'll be to help people um, and to stand up for people who don't have a voice and for people who work over 40 hours a week and don't have the time uh, to think about these things, to think about, um, you know, these policies that are affecting them. And, and you know, what they have to think about is how am I going to get food on the table? How am I going to support my kids? And, and I, I think that it's important for me to use my now extra time uh, to help people. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) On your journey. Adele McClure, wow, uh, you were student body leader at Virginia Commonwealth University, and now you're outreach and policy director for Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, after a most trying and challenging childhood and adolescence. Congratulations. Very proud of you. Very happy to have you here. Please come and co-host the show anytime you'd like. (laughs) Mi casa es tu casa. You are a Richmonder now? I am. All right, we're going to have to hit a restaurant or two. Oh, yeah. I I love the food here. Amazing. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Charlotte Candler is our editorial assistant. You can find us on NPR One, where you should love us. Hit that light bulb thing several times so my ranking goes up. And of course, on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Subscribe early and often. Also on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio, Twitter at FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>